So, if you're a visitor here this morning, it's great to have you with us. Um, just for your benefit, we've been working through, as a church, uh, the book of James, this amazing letter that we find in the New Testament. And uh, we're towards the end of it now. We're into uh, chapter 5. So if you're here perhaps for the first time, or if you're here back from university or just visiting, it's a bit like coming into the end of a TV program. And uh, you kind of think, oh, but some of it doesn't make sense because I've missed the the bit before. And um, what's that? Do you ever get that? Often at home. At home. I'll walk in to the lounge when Jody's just at the end of watching a TV program. And I'll say, well, who's that guy? Well, what did he do? Well, what about this? And uh, why are they dead? And she'll say, look, if you wanted to watch it, you should have come in at the start. Not at the... And she'll get really annoyed. So apologies, it might feel a little bit like that this morning as we're towards the end of James. But as we approach Christmas, it's really a time where we remember God entering human history like never before. About God coming to earth. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus entering our messed up world and inviting us back to the Father. See, I was thinking about this, just this morning actually. We're looking at the book of James, and uh, James is, James is the, the, the brother of Jesus. And you know, maybe as he was growing up, maybe, maybe he'd have heard from his mum and dad the story of that night. That's the story of of um, Jesus being born. Perhaps of the shepherds visiting, the wise men of having to flee to Egypt. Perhaps that story is in James's mind all the time. He knows that. He remembers that. Because for James, in this letter that we've been looking at, the whole of what Christmas means means that life is meant to be lived in connection and closeness with God. See, how we connect with God is really, really important. James is a kind of practical kind of guy. You know, he's he's aware that he wants us to know that. Because of that connection, because of that relationship, we live a totally different life. I love the thing about the ribbon. You know, once my life was dull, now it's shiny. It's been changed. It's because of that changed life that we live differently, that it affects our life. So, let's read our passage for this morning. And don't worry if you haven't got a Bible, but the words will appear on the screen. So it's James chapter 5, and it's from verse 13 down to 18. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord 
will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop. So as we approach this final section of James, his focus is on prayer. And I've got four points that I want to draw out from this morning. Four, hey, well, hang, hang on, hang on. Comes to that. Prayer is personal. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is plural. And prayer is privilege. And any person who preaches will tell you, if you have a three-point sermon with all the same with the, the same, beginning with the same letter, one of them won't be very good. One of them is just shoehorned in to fit. Well, hey, I've got four points, and two aren't very good, and two are shoehorned to be good. The last two didn't really fit, but hey, it sounds good. I like Paul's for next week. Paul's sounds really good. Okay, so firstly, prayer that is personal. See, the the society we live in saves prayer for the really important times in life. See, I remember there were probably two types of prayer when I was growing up. There was the God bless mum and dad and my brother and nan and all that kind of stuff. And also those, those prayers where actually you're in deep trouble and you've got a crisis. I remember as a, a, a young teenager dislocating my knee. And I've dislocated both of my knees. Uh, I don't know how to translate that. Broken my knees. <laughs> um, uh, both playing football. And you kind of think, do you know, you want the story when you get to A&E of, do you know, there was two of us going for the same ball and we slid in and uh, it was a, a humongous crunch and, and then that dislocated my knee. Or you want the story of, hey, I was running and someone came behind me and tripped me. And you want that kind of story. But no, I dislocated my knee. I was running along with the ball and it just popped out. (laughs) It just fell out. And uh, I fell on the floor and it was a lot of pain. So not a very great story uh, of of an amazing injury, but hey, it still hurt. Um, And I was in crutches for six to eight weeks And I remember that first night getting home, thinking about how am I going to manage not being able to walk for six to eight weeks on crutches. And as a young lad, I was just like, God, help. How am I going to get through this? Please help me. But often this can be the case for people. It's often only those crisis situations where we ever consider talking to God. Serious illness, relationship trouble, family trouble. See, the world doesn't really believe in prayer until it really needs God to do something for it. In the words of uh, Robbie Williams, the great Robbie Williams, uh, in his latest song, about crisis, actually, and he sings this. 
blisters at the end of my fingertips, praying to a God I don't think exists. Will you listen now? Can you forgive me somehow? Prayer becomes like the button we press in an emergency when actually we're even not sure if the button works or does anything or makes any difference. But for James, living in relationship with God is meant to be for the whole of life. He says this, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any one of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Let's look at those one by one, shall we? Is any one of you in trouble? By trouble he means, do you know, the stuff of life, the difficulties, the sufferings, the opposition, the bereavement. And what is James's response to these things? They should pray. The right response to those situations is prayer and a dependence on God. A kind of God help. I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting in you. Then he says, is any one of you happy? See, by happy, he doesn't mean, you know, everything's all going well, and you're just skipping through life, and hey, everything's fine in life, everything's brilliant, the garden is rosy. No, it, it doesn't mean that. Actually, what it means is, it's about a good heart. You know, life might be difficult, but do you know there's a lightness and there's a positive spirit that God has brought to my heart. Again, what's James's response in that? Let the person sing songs of praise and declare that it's all about God. It doesn't mean you have to go around singing. Oh, no, no, how are you today? Oh, I'm wonderful. The Lord is great. No, no. Well, you're very welcome to. But it means have a positive thankfulness to God. Just like that, Val, is it? No, not like that. Not like that. Maybe in tune. <laughs> it means having a positive thankfulness to God for what he's doing in your life. See, whether life is troublesome or whether we're feeling the burden of life or whether, you know, we're in a place where actually we're thankful to God, things are good, we've got a positive heart, Both of those places should lead us to God. Both should show our desperate need for him. And our need for him in our lives. And that when we're in difficulties, hey, do you know, he's the one that helps. And when we're happy and things are going well, do you know, he's the one that's working in our lives and has been working in our lives. See, John Calvin, who was a famous uh, church um, reformer, leader from the 16th century in Europe, this is what John Calvin says about this verse. He says this, There's no time in which God does not invite us to himself. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. See, I love what Calvin's saying. See, it's not just about simply acknowledging God's goodness. Hey, God's good. Yeah. God's good in bad times. God's good. No, no. It's about God personally inviting us to him, to encounter him supernaturally. That's the Christian life. 
It's a personal, relational, ongoing walk with God. You might think, well, that was all right for Calvin. He probably just sat in his study all day reading his Bible. Anyway, what does he know about real life and uh, modern day living? Well, actually, he knew the pains of life. He was a refugee that had to flee from his home country of France. His son died at two weeks old. And after nine nine years of marriage to his wife, she sadly died, leaving him a single father to raise his two stepchildren. And at the death of his son, he wrote about it and he says this. He says, do you know, I don't know why. I don't know why this has happened. And it hurts. It's painful. But he says this. But God, too, is a father and knows what is best for his children. So there's a sense that Calvin wasn't denying reality. Do you know, well, it doesn't hurt, it's fine. No, he's saying, no, this hurts. This is hard. But yet, he trusted that in his tragedy, God was both good and in control. See, wherever you're at today, however things in life are working, whether they're good or whether it's hard, there's an invite for you from the Heavenly Father to himself. See, whether 2012 has been a terrible year for you, a hard year for you, or whether 2012 has, has been good, you look back on it with lots of joy. Do you know the God of heaven invites you to know him and to delight in him? So, James wants us to understand that prayer is about personal relationship encounter with God for all of life. But also, he wants us to know that prayer is powerful. And you know, one of the most impressive things about prayer, one of the most powerful things about prayer is this. It changes me. That's a pretty impressive miracle. If you knew me and you knew my life, and if I knew you and I knew your life, That's an impressive miracle, that it changes us. And as I pray, do you know, things get put in the right perspective. I can sometimes have the the wrong motives in life. I can want the wrong things. I can want God to act in situations for the wrong reasons. But do you know, when I pray, I often find that God changes me rather than the situation sometimes. Often the goal of our Heavenly Father is to change us through that living, powerful relationship of prayer with him. He wants to help us become the people he has meant us to be. Is that just me? Is that everyone? I find God changes me. He's more interested in me and changing me than giving me everything I want. You know, I don't give my children everything they want. If I did, there'd be anarchy. But I want them to learn and I want them to grow. And do you know, I find God changes me in such a similar way. 
But you know, for some, that's where the benefits of prayer would end. They would say, that's it. That's it. That's where, that's where the power of prayer ends. Helping us through things. But do you know, prayer changes situations too. And we have this funny verse that James puts in that says this. Uh, if someone is sick, they should call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil. See, there's examples in the Bible of people being anointed uh, with oil, pouring oil on sick people. Do you know in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, uh, the Good Samaritan brings some oil and he anoints the, the guy's uh, injuries with oil for medicinal reasons. There's also examples of oil being used as kind of symbolic, as the power of God and the healing power of God. And so for this, I kind of had to look around and read around and think, okay, what is this all about? What do I do with this verse? And uh, as I've read, some have said, well, actually, oil is symbolic of waiting and wanting the Holy Spirit to work in the sick person's life and wanting wanting him to heal them. It could be that. It could also be the idea of anointing with oil, the idea of setting apart a person for God, for healing. You see, oil was often poured on people in the Old Testament for anointing, to be set apart for a specific purpose. Perhaps leadership, they were anointed, poured on oil, to be set apart for what God had for them. Perhaps it's symbolic of that. We want them set apart for healing. However, the overall model in the Bible for healing is that God uses you and I. That's amazing. The overwhelming model in the Bible is he uses you and me to heal, to heal the sick. Each and every Christian. Nowhere does it say it's only for leaders. It's just for those in authority. But this passage does say that there are times when it is appropriate for those that are in authority in the church to pray for someone who's sick. Maybe it's an example thing. Maybe leaders should be leaders are meant to be examples, aren't they? Leaders are meant to model something. Maybe it's about that. Maybe it's about hey, we're taking um, we are leading by example and praying for the sick. Maybe it's to do with that. And there's this reference to this symbolic act of anointing them with oil. However, do you know, James doesn't say the power's in the oil. He says the power is in the prayer offered in faith. I'm going to come back to this later on. Prayer, the prayer offered in faith. You see, it's not some kind of formula. I wonder if James says that, the prayer offered in faith, because he doesn't want people to get into some formula. You know, we get the oil out, we put the oil on, we say the prayer, hocus pocus, and they should be well. Hopefully that will work. Do you know, that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not just some formula we use. Prayer is meant to be relational. It's about coming to God, our Father, in faith. So I hope what that verse does, actually, is encourage you that there is power in prayer, that God heals today. We believe that. 
Just an example. Who, who knows they've been healed by God? They, they know there's been a time in their life they've been healed by God, or they've prayed for someone and they've healed. Look at that. Look, that's great. Brilliant. Thank you. That's great. God heals today. It's exciting. And do you know there'll be an opportunity at the end? Uh, I want to make sure there's an opportunity that we can pray for the sick because God heals today. Finally, my third point. Prayer is plural. Plural just means more than one. He says this in verse 16. Pray for each other. See, there's something about praying with others that is just so great. It's something that I love. Do you know, if you want to learn how to pray, perhaps if you're a new Christian or perhaps you just, you're young and you think, oh, do you know, I struggle with prayer sometimes, this is what I'd encourage you. Come to the prayer meeting. Come to the prayer. I remember as a young man going to prayer meetings and learning how to pray. Not learning the words to say, oh yeah, I'll just copy that, but learning the heart of prayer. Watching other people, seeing their passion for prayer and then following their example. That would be my advice to you. Or join a prayer team. Hey, if you're not in a prayer team, a group of people that get together to pray, then we can kind of hook you up. We can fix you up. So why don't you come and, and see us? And we can sort that for you. We can help you find a team to pray with. See, the Christian life is meant to be lived together, isn't it? Sharing with one another. It's meant to be something we do together. And that's very different to our Western outlook of life, where actually sharing life together is just putting your, your post on Facebook, saying, I had, I had lamb for tea tonight. It was great. <laughs> no, that's not sharing life together. Sharing life together is about being with one another, praying with one another, doing life together. Hey, but do you know that's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy. Sometimes we upset one another. Sometimes we get things wrong. Do you know, sometimes I get annoyed with my friends and they get annoyed with me. Yep, it's absolutely true. Sometimes there are actions and thoughts and behavior that get in the way of our friendships. And if they're not dealt with, they have a negative effect on it. That's why James says, confess your sins to each other. See, we can often think the Christian life is just about me and God, and that's what's important. But actually, it's not. It's about the relationships we have with one another as well. And actually, we find that those relationships we have with one another affects our relationship with God too. So the sin, the confessing of sins that James is talking about isn't like get together and tell each other your deepest, darkest secrets. What's the worst thing you've done? And just tell it to each other. No, no, it's talking about sin that is relational, where you know, you know, I've done something wrong, I've offended that person. Wrong attitudes that have affected those relationships. For instance, if a friend, you're going to meet a friend, they stand you up, and they don't meet you, and you think, oh, they didn't meet me. And it kind of eats in you inside, and you think, oh, do you know, I knew it. I knew they didn't like me. Uh, do you know, well, actually, I don't like them either. Actually, do you know, they really annoy me. And, and do you know, the next time you see them, you're really off with them. Because, oh, do you know, I, don't, I really don't like them. And uh, they probably did it on purpose. And, they probably, uh, and it eats and it eats away at you. Until actually you see them and you, you say, do you, know, do you know, I've got something to say. When you, 
when we didn't meet at that time or, or, or didn't go for coffee. And, and I thought, I thought it was, I kind of just had bitter thoughts and I thought it's because you didn't like me. And I just need to really confess that. And I need to be really honest with you. And, and actually, I just need to confess it. Hey, that's the type of confessing James is on about. Do you know that relational stuff that gets in the way of relationships and friendships? And finally, prayer that is privilege. See, we can think that, do you know, God will only hear my prayers if I'm really good. If I have lived a really good life, and you know, I need to earn his attention first before I pray. And then it makes it worse, because we read this verse, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And we go, oh my goodness. I've definitely got to give, live a good life in order for God, for, to, for my prayers to be powerful and effective. Because sometimes we can treat righteousness like receiving an OBE. Do you know what an OBE is? I'll have to translate that first. <laughs> an OBE is the Order of the British Empire. And it's one of those awards you receive from the Queen if you've done good service to the country. And uh, it's an award for doing good service to the country. And you get to go to the Queen and you get to receive it from her. And it's recognised all the good work you've done. And it only goes to people who have achieved something. And so we think, well, actually, that's a bit like prayer. Prayer is only effective if I've been a really good person. But, you know, that's not what James talks about when he's talking about righteousness. That's not what the Bible means. Well, what does it mean, then? It means if you put your trust in Jesus, if you've made a decision to walk with him in life and him with you, you have been made righteous. You have been given the righteousness of Jesus. It's given to you, credited to you. His righteousness. It's like being awarded someone else's OBE. It's like turning up to collect the OBE. Oh, what did you do? Oh, I didn't do anything. I'm just, I'm just here receiving it. Actually, someone else did all the work. It's brilliant. Grace is amazing. This is the righteousness of God to us. And then James illustrates it by using the Old Testament prophet Elijah as an example. He says this, Elijah was a man just like us. Now, if you know anything about Elijah's life from the Old Testament, you'll know he did some amazing things. He raised a child from the dead. He confronted one of the worst kings in Old Testament history. He prayed for it not to rain for three and a half years, and it didn't, and then it did. Do you know, we are impressed. But here, here's some other things we know about Elijah from the Old Testament. He was someone that could show amazing faith and commitment to God, but then experienced despair and depression. He was brave one minute, and then when his life was threatened, he ran away in fear and hid. He was selfless in his concern for others. One minute. And then the next, he was filled with self-pity. In other words, he was a normal person. But he was right with God. 
And do you know that's the privilege of every Christian, every believer. You have been made right with God through Christ. The joy of knowing God and being his child. It's not for some exclusive, special group of Christians that lives over here. Hey, we're the special Christians. We've been made righteous because we've done some extra things. No, no, it's every Christian, every believer made right with God. So maybe we're not as far from Elijah as we think. Maybe he's just like us. Do you know, don't count yourself out because of your weaknesses and your life circumstances. I was just thinking about this at Christmas as well. Think of Mary. Do you know this young, teenaged girl? And an angel comes to her and gives her the news that she's going to have a baby and it's going to be the king of the world. She could have just, you know, at first she says, how can this be? But she says, do you know, I'm the Lord's servant. Don't count yourself out because of your circumstances. You see, friendship with God isn't a performance thing. It's the grace and kindness of him to us. And you know, as I was thinking about Christmas too, I was thinking about the pressure that comes with this time of year. The pressure to perform. The pressure to make the perfect Christmas. There's TV shows to help us do it. To make the perfect homemade Christmas. There's TV adverts that tell us that Christmas will not be Christmas without this particular product on your Christmas table or in your home. Mum and Dad are getting really anxious because they want everything to just be right, because it's Christmas. Everything has to be perfect. When actually, the truth is, you cannot make the perfect Christmas. Because Christmas is about a gift given to us. The gift of a baby born 2,000 years ago, not born into a perfect world, but born into an imperfect world and into our imperfect, messed up lives. The gift of a baby that grew into a man. The gift of a man that we find was God. The gift of a man that was God that hung on a cross and died a brutal death for you and me. The gift of God the Son dealing with all that mess between us and God the Father and the gift of us being brought back to God. See, one of the most famous Bible passages that lots and lots of people know is so right for Christmas. John 3, verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, he gave his one and only son, it says. See, Christmas is meant to be a time of celebration, a time of joy, but at the same time, we're so aware that it's not always the easiest time for everyone. Perhaps you're away from your family at Christmas. Perhaps they're in a different nation altogether. It's a time when we remember people who we would so dearly love to be here, 
but they aren't. A time when we think about maybe those people that have died and aren't here this Christmas. And we wonder, why, why are we thinking like this? Particularly, why is it particularly hard at Christmas? Hey, but do you know, take comfort in this. At the heart of the Christmas message is a father who has given his one and only son. Knowing that he would be brutally beaten, tortured and murdered on a cross. And he did it for you and for me. In the midst of Christmas, don't lose sight of the cross. So how should we respond this morning? Because we're going to respond. If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you know this God who gave the perfect gift to mankind of his son, Jesus, he's calling you this morning. He is inviting you to himself. But do you know, just like a Christmas present, we can kind of leave that unwrapped. We can leave that gift unwrapped. I'll just leave it over there. Or we can just tinker at the edges, you know, like little kids do. And just kind of start to peel the edges and start to just kind of have a sneak in and just play with the edges. We can just do that. But he is inviting you to unwrap that present this morning. Why don't you do that? Why don't you make that decision? Maybe you want to take one of these things that we've got out on the welcome table. We've got a a little book called Why Christmas. It's a great, easy-read book. Um, all about Christmas um, from the people who do the Alpha course. There's one of those you can take from the welcome table. That's free. This is free as well. It's called The Case for Christmas. There's about eight or ten of these on the table. You can take these for free. Again, it's a bit meatier, a bit heavier. But again, why don't you take one of those if you want to know more? Perhaps you've counted yourself out for whatever reason. Do you know, I know... I know I want to pray, I want to encounter God more, but you know I count myself out because of situations in my life, because of circumstances in my life, because, hey, why would God want me? Remember Elijah. He's just like us. And you have been called to intimacy and friendship with God, not based on your performance. Maybe like this passage says, you're in trouble. You've got troubles today, this Christmas, this year. There's an invite from God to himself this morning, to all of us, wherever you're at. Or maybe you need healing. Hey, there's going to be an opportunity this morning. We'll pray at the end. What we'll do is after we've sung, if you want to come over here, we'll pray. And there'll be some people there who will come out and pray for you. They're not the super special Christians. It just means there's people there to pray and they can pray for you. So we'll do that afterwards. But I want us to respond in a song as well. And Shirley's going to come out and lead us, and we're all going to sing together. But I want us to pray before we do that. Why don't we stand?